as I come in front of you this morning, I have a confession to share with all of you. I know you're always like titillating. You just, what's the information? Okay, here we go. I have a massive problem in my yard. Like, my yard is incredibly problematic, and this is the problem that I have in my yard. My yard is filled with dandelions. That, oh, and you're like, why is that a confession? Let me explain it to you. Uh, let me actually first show you a picture. So uh, there's going to be a picture up here. This is my daughter helping me pluck the dandelions out of my yard. So we get to go around and pick these things up. These things are everywhere. You can see kind of on the edge of my yard, on the horizon there. They're everywhere. There you go to the front yard. They're everywhere. And you might say, okay, and by, by the way, she helped me probably with half of them. So like she's out there like pushing down on the thing and helping me get out, right? Okay. So you might hear me talk about this and go, okay, you plucked all the dandelions out of your yard. Like, isn't that a little overboard? Like, aren't you going a little too far? And I hear you say that, but here's the problem. You have not driven down my street. And you know what exists on my street? Yards everywhere with zero dandelions in them. No dandelions at all. My yard stands out. So that's, that's problematic. And so, um, so you might tell me, okay, Alex, well, you know, there's a solution for that. You just put down chemicals on your yard, right? Like, this is how you solve the problem. Here's the reality, though. In my first three years of owning my house, I thought I was, like, going to protect the environment and all of this stuff, so I wouldn't put chemicals down on my yard, and we all know that was a mistake now, right? Because now I am having issues with the dandelions in my yard. I thought, I don't need chemicals, and now my yard is overrun. And so then you might say, well, hey, if you put down, if you, like, if you start putting them down, like, they'll eventually take care of it. You just need to relax. And I want to ask you, do you know how dandelions work? If my yard is full of dandelions like that, do you know what is in jeopardy? My entire neighborhood. I am, I am jeopardizing my whole neighborhood by allowing dandelions to exist in my yard. In all of these pristine lawns, every one of my neighbors drives by my yard and goes, that guy has a lot of dandelions. We have to look out for that. Right, so... Right now, a significant number of my neighbors know three things about me. Number one, they know that I am a pastor. Number two, they know that I have a very cute daughter. And number three, they know that my yard is filled with dandelions, right? And that's all they know about me, right? I have nothing here to impress them. And so this may not matter in some neighborhoods, and I totally understand that, but it happens to matter if I'm just like observing in my neighborhood. And so as I was preparing this sermon this week, which is about being good neighbors, uh, I got a little bit convicted. And so, so this is my confession to you and my desire to strive to be a better neighbor. So we're in a series called Decisions. And uh, last week, we kind of introduced this series. We're going through the law, Exodus 21 through 24. These are kind of follow-up commands to the Ten Commandments. And God is giving Israel these kind of laws to help them make decisions in heated moments. And this is what we talked about last week. Our decisions in heated moments tell a story. 
Right? The decisions that we make in heated moments tell a story. So I want to talk to you about uh, an Old Testament principle. That Old Testament principle is the principle of shalom. Uh, now, there's Jewish influence in our culture, right? And so you might hear me say shalom and go, okay, I've heard that word somewhere before. You're probably used to, to thinking that word means peace. And you would not entirely be wrong about that. There is the idea of peace with shalom, but the word actually carries more than the idea of an absence of conflict. Like shalom represents the idea that things are whole, that life is the way that it's supposed to be, that things are right in the world. Shalom is actually what existed at the beginning of creation when God made everything and he looked at it and he said, it is very good right? This moment is the idea of shalom. Another way that we could articulate it is like this. Shalom is humanity in right relationship with God and with each other. Shalom is simply humanity in right relationship with God and with each other. And if you know the story of Genesis, then in Genesis chapter 1, it was very good. And then by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, something happens. Shalom gets disrupted because Adam and Eve, what do they do? They disobey God. They revolt against God. It's, it's as if creation was telling its creator, we know better than you do. We've got this ourselves. We don't really need you. And from that point forward, shalom no longer exists in creation. It's now disrupted by sin. Sin infects everything, including human relationships. And so now, uh, not only are we uh, at odds with God, but we're at odds with each other. Now, jealousy exists in our relationships. Now, hatred can arise between us. Now, I can be having a conversation to you, and, and with you, and I can be talking to you, and I can be affirming you, but I can be actually thinking about everything that you're thinking of me. Like, I could be like, okay, do they, do they think that I'm engaging well? What, do, what is their impression of me, right? So my conversation with you is not about you. It's about me trying to make myself look good. Like, that's actually possible. That reality exists because shalom has been disrupted. We become selfish, Hatred comes up. Envy comes up, right? So, so broken human relationships, they represent a disruption of shalom. Why does that matter? Because Israel was God's nation called out of Egypt. God was going to send Israel into the midst of other nations, and they were going to show those nations what shalom was supposed to look like. What does it look like when human beings are in right relationship with their creator and with each other? Like, they're going to they're gonna go into the middle of nations that worship multiple false gods. Nations where neighbor takes advantage of neighbor. Nations where focusing on me and what is mine is common. Nations where falsehood for personal gain is running rampant. And God wants them in the middle of this heated moment to tell a story. A story about his shalom. So uh, that's their cultural moment. I wonder if we could step back and ask a question about our cultural moment. The differences between faithful, biblically committed Jesus followers and the rest of the world are becoming increasingly stark in our cultural moment. Like, uh, following Jesus is far less popular than it used to be. And now, not only that, but to be biblically faithful in some cases will get you called oppressive, right? Uh, you will be called a, a person who is bigoted even, right? Like, there are these differences, and the differences, it's not really creating 
persecution for us, but it is creating a level of exclusion from society. So the differences are becoming more and more stark. And in the midst of that, like our goal has not changed. We still have a story to tell people. So, so following Jesus, like this is the story, right? Following Jesus is the way to true shalom. Like following Jesus is the way that we get restored in relationship with God and that begins to restore our relationships with others. So if that's true, no matter how stark the differences are, may the following thing always be said of us. Jesus' followers are considerate neighbors. Now, that was a lot of buildup, and you might have heard me say, Jesus' followers are considerate neighbors, and go, okay, that was like a little anticlimactic. Um, so, because what, what you hear when I say that is, this is a sermon about being nice, right? And do we really have time for a sermon about being nice? Like, when we have so many other things that we could talk about, but, but listen to me for a second. So, your consideration may not be the thing that draws somebody else to Jesus, but your lack of consideration could be the very thing that would keep a person from ever hearing what you have to say about Jesus. So with that being said, we're going to examine what the law has to say about the ways that we neighbor, the ways that we interact with our neighbors. So we're going to discover three big categories for how God wants his people to represent shalom. So remember... As we go through this, it's going to feel like we're skipping around throughout Exodus 21 and 24, but uh, if we read it in order, like if we read Exodus 21 through 24 in order, uh, Hebrew law is not neatly put together like we would want it to be put together. And so what it does is it provides a number of different examples that illustrate to us principles. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some of those examples that exists throughout the law, and what we're going to do is we're going to try to discover the bigger principles that they represent for us. So here is the first big category about being a good neighbor. Good neighbors value authority. Good neighbors value authority. So there are three big spheres of authority that God calls his people to uphold in this law. So the first sphere of authority is that of the family. It's the most basic unit of relationships in society. Flourishing societies come as a result of flourishing families. So, so read what God says. This first sphere, the family, Exodus 21, 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. And then Exodus 21, 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So parents, just an encouragement. Don't be getting any ideas in your head right now. This is not giving you permission to do something that you might really want to do at certain times, but uh, this is an expansion on the fifth command. This is an expansion on the idea that we are to honor mother and father. And when it says strike, this is not like to simply hit your parent, but the idea is that you would seek to mortally wound your parent, that you would seek to do significant damage to your father or your mother. And then when it says curse, 
It's not simply saying mean things to your parents, although that's not really good, and that's not aligning with a mother, honoring mother and father, but, but actually to curse in this situation is kind of to denounce, to separate yourself from, to say, I reject my existence in this family. I think this family is worthless. So if you did this in, in uh, the Hebrew nation, you were in violation of something significant. You see, these laws, what they do is they maintain the integrity of society by lifting up the role of parents, by emphasizing the role of the family. And why does it do that? Because when you neglect your responsibility towards your parents, number one, um, society has to bear that responsibility for caring for your parents. Right? So, so you're called to care for them because if you don't, then society will have to. Uh, the other reason... When you reject your parents, you reject an authority that God has placed in your life to shape you. And then the third is that your example sets a precedent. So when I was in high school, uh, I had friends around me who would talk about the different times when they told their parents off. And what's interesting is that that just doesn't stay static. It creates a culture of people who think it's more and more acceptable to tell their parents off. So when you set a precedent in a society, it weakens the society further and further. So that's the first sphere of authority. The second sphere of authority is this. It's between people and rulers or society. So Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So something specific to Israel and how the, they, uh, God's nation was going to function is that God is the ruler of Israel. Right? This is something that we could only say of Israel. God is their ruler, and then what he does is that he appoints other rulers within Israel. Right, And so he's kind of setting up for Israel the line of authority for how the ruling of this nation will work. So, so that's the concept. That's the line of authority. And it actually, like when we trust our rulers, or actually when we, we honor our rulers, what we're saying, what we're doing is we're acknowledging something about God's sovereignty. That God has placed this person where they are, that he is in control of everything, and that we're going to trust him. So multiple times in the New Testament, it tells us to submit to our rulers, whether they're rulers in the world or leaders in the church. And why does it do that? Well, it certainly doesn't do it because they're perfect people. It certainly doesn't do it because uh, it expects that they're going to get everything right. But the reality is, is we live in a world where there are challenging realities to navigate. And in order to, for a group of people to be able to navigate those challenging realities, God creates a structure of authority. He puts somebody in place to lead and help that group navigate the challenging realities. And so there's another... Uh, kind of sphere of authority that he's recognizing. The third sphere is between people and the justice system. So uh, it says in Exodus 21, 12, and 13, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So uh, here's what's happening. If you murder someone in Israel, uh, the, the government, uh, the, the system, the justice system has the right to put you to death. But then there are certain circumstances where you would be in a struggle with somebody or you might even accidentally cause the death of a person. And in those situations, God is creating kind of a structure where the person who, could, who committed the accident could be protected. 
right? Because in this society, what would happen is if you were responsible for somebody's death, the family of that person would come after you. They would pursue you. They would actually seek to have revenge for their family member. And so they made these places in Israel called cities of refuge. These are places where uh, uh, these people who committed these accidents could go and they could be protected. In those cities, they had judges. And those judges had a, a whole system of laws that would help them to make judgments in various circumstances for the people who came into the city. And so this is what we need to see, that the law... And the justice system which implements the law are another line of authority that God is establishing in this nation. Right? So, so three different lines of authority. These three spheres, they get highlighted and they help us to understand authority. So, so okay, we've talked a lot about authority. We went through the examples. So what, what does my value for authority actually have to do with being a good neighbor? Like, I think that is a valid question. As you think of impacting your neighbor, what does my value for authority have to do with being a considerate neighbor? So I want to tell you something. Societies will flee shalom when two things happen. Societies flee shalom when two things happen. Number one, authorities wrongly exercise their responsibility. Right? So, so when somebody is given authority, they're not just given that place of authority to abuse, uh, to misuse. They're given that authority, and they're given an equal level of responsibility for the people that they are in authority over. So authorities wrongly exercise their responsibility. Societies flee shalom when that happens. And the second thing, when people regularly disregard authorities. When these two things happen, societies flee shalom. So, so think for a second. Think of society like a building. Buildings need structural integrity. So if you have a foundation, and that foundation is not solid, if there are cracks in that foundation, the building is in jeopardy. If you have a basement, and there is a crack in your basement wall, it's not just that basement wall that's in jeopardy. Now water can get in. Now it can flood everything, right? It messes with the whole system. Maybe you're working on a demolition project. Well, you know what you need to do before you start demolishing? You need to check for load-bearing walls. Because at those places where the load-bearing walls exist, if you take those down, you take the whole house down, right? There are specific places, key important places in a house that if you take those things down, the whole thing will start to crumble around it. So when you disregard authority, or as a leader, you wrongly exercise authority, then the society that your neighbor lives in is in jeopardy. Right? So there are these key points of integrity that you jeopardize. So here's the deal. How we as individuals respond to police matters. Like how we honor the various avenues available to us within our democratic republic matters. How we as leaders, if we are given positions of leadership, how we use that influence matters. How we honor the authority of parents, whether they're our parents or somebody else's parents. If we're watching a child, we want to, in that child's eyes, support the authority of their parents in that person's life. We honor the authority of parents because when we value authority, that value for authority may do nothing to tangibly in the moment change things for our neighbor, 
But when we value authority, we tell a story of a God who values authority. And we tell that story to the extent that even, even when, this is why the New Testament can say what it does, even when we feel like authorities are being unfair to us, when we feel like they are being unjust, when they start to take our rights away, which is what happened, by the way, with the early church, the writers of the epistles of the early church are saying, submit to your authorities. Honor the, the leaders that God has placed over you. Okay, so that's the, that's the first big category of these laws. The second big category for good neighboring is this. Good neighbors are thoughtful. So, so throughout Exodus 21 through 24, you will see a ton of laws that deal with interactions between neighbors and interactions between their property. So in the surrounding countries, it was common for disputes to last a very long time. It was common for uh, disputes over, oh, you did this to my property, or oh, you didn't watch out for this, to create strife in relationships. And it was common for the instances where people would hurt and harm one another to cast blame and never take ownership for themselves. No one took responsibility for their, themselves, much less for their neighbor. Like, nobody thought about the impact that they had on their neighbor. And so God is telling a different story with the society he's creating. Exodus 21, 33. When a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it. Okay, we're just going to pause there. It says more later. We're going to come back to that. Let's just think about this for a second, though. Uh, We have no relationship to opening up pits in our yards, really. But the idea that's being thought of here is, hey, you're going to have your neighbor's animals. This is kind of like an open field, right? Your neighbor's animals might wander into your yard. And if you have opened up a pit, you need to be really careful because then you you could entrap your neighbor's property. You need to think about the way that your property is going to impact your neighbor's property. Right? That's what it's saying. Okay, so then again, another example, Exodus 22.5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field. So what's happening is that your property is going, your beast is going into your neighbor's field and is essentially eating all of the crops, which is your neighbor's money, which is his property, right? So, and then these have results of you know, if this, then this, but I just want to focus on the if this, these situations. As an owner of property in Israel, you are called not just to think about what you have, but how what you have impacts other people. So thoughtfulness is the thing that is at the heart of consideration. Like unthoughtfulness is me letting dandelions run rampant in my yard so that the the seeds can flow everywhere and be planted in other people's yards, right? Thoughtfulness considers how people might be impacted by what you do. And so this, this carried over, not just like in the area of property, but into the area of our words, the ways that we use our words. So Exodus 23, 1 through 2. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So this is expanding on the seventh commandment. You do not bear false witness. And the big idea here 
is that you would be thoughtful about the way that your words will impact your neighbor. You would be thoughtful about, the, like if you're going to, to speak something about your neighbor that might diminish their reputation, you better make sure that that thing you're going to speak is true. You're, you better make sure that it represents what is actually true. You don't want to spread something false about your neighbor because reputation really matters. So, so Christians, just by the way, this is an important warning for us. If we're going to be thoughtful neighbors, we cannot permit ourselves to engage in gossip. We cannot permit ourselves to engage in things that might bring down a per- person's reputation, even if we're speculating. Right? We cannot engage in that kind of behavior because we need to show care for our neighbors in caring about their reputation. When we fail to be thoughtful with any of these things, whether it's with our neighbor's reputation or whether it's with our property, if we fail to be thoughtful with these things, then what we do is we create opportunity for division, for strife. And the greater opportunity we create for division, the more we push out the possibility of shalom ever coming in. So now at least you think that this stops with, hey, don't let anything you have harm your neighbor's stuff. There is one final command that actually tells Israelites that they don't just take responsibility for their own stuff, but they actually take responsibility for their neighbor. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, going astray. You shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, then you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So, so some of you ha- may have neighbors or co-workers or family members that you really don't like. And, and what you need to recognize is that being a thoughtful neighbor, being thoughtful would mean that you would take a responsibility, a level of responsibility for care, even for the person that you're not inclined to like. Now, why, like, why would God tell Israel, even your enemies, be thoughtful to them? Why would he say something about that? Why would we be thoughtful to this extent? Well, Israel, again, they're in the midst of this place where we say, what's mine is mine, but but God is trying to recreate shalom here, right? And so he wants his people not just to love themselves, but to love their neighbor and to be concerned about their enemies. So what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus comes along and says something like, bless those who persecute you. You know, love your enemies. Go above and beyond for them. See them as people who are to be served and are to be cared for. So, to the extent that Jesus was thoughtful for us, who, by the way, are called enemies of God when we're stuck in our sin, to the extent that Jesus was thoughtful toward us in his death on the cross for us, the Bible calls us to be thoughtful towards our neighbors and especially towards the ones that we don't like. And we are thoughtful to this extent because guess what? Our thoughtfulness has the ability to tell a story. So, one more, one more big category. Good neighbors make things right. So a significant number of these laws, as you go through these four chapters, they're focused on a principle that is called restitution. And restitution, it very simply answers a question, what do we do when shalom is broken? Like, what do we do when uh, my neighbor damages my property? What do we do when someone steals? 
What do we do when someone destroys? What do we do when we make mistakes, right? All of these things are addressed. And, and so God uniquely ensures that his people will be a people who have integrity, who own their wrongs, and who work to do something really special, which is called restoring. So Exodus 21, 33 and 34. When a man opens a pit, or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, so we looked at this one already, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, this is the part that comes after. The owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. You want to know something really interesting? The word make restoration is the Hebrew word shalom. To make restoration is to make shalom, to give back what you have taken. He's, it's, like, it's like God is saying, you know what, this broken world, in this place, if you just allow it to run its course, uh, it will drive people apart from each other. And when you have responsibility, so if you have responsibility for some of the brokenness, then what you need to do is you need to seek to make it right. So this, this new society that God is building, it's one where God's people would take ownership for their mistakes and strive to make things right. So, so in this, like what God was doing was amazing because he was preparing them for something in the giving of this law. So this is what he was doing. When your property gets damaged or when there is property damage, then what happens is relationship is jeopardized relationship between you and your neighbor. And so when that relationship is jeopardized, you know what? Someone has to pay to restore the relationship, to make things, to get things back to where they belong. Uh, thievery, when somebody steals something, then the relationship is jeopardized. And when relationship is jeopardized, you know what has to happen? Somebody has to pay something to get that relationship back, to restore the relationship. And personal injury, when somebody hurts you or you hurt somebody else, then there's a chance that relationship is jeopardized. And so you know what ha has to happen? Somebody has to pay something to restore that relationship. And you know what? We can really relate to that. Like God starts with this first part of the law because we know what it's like to be wronged. We know what it's like to have somebody take something from us, and we can look at that and say, yes, it is right that whoever took the thing from us should have to pay it back, should have to make that relationship right. They should have to pay for it. And so God spends kind of like the bulk of the, his energy on this front end of the law. He's talking about the ways that we relate to each other, and he's talking about damaging these relationships and what it takes to get the relationship back, to make restoration, to make shalom. Because it would set the stage for how they relate to him. Right? He hasn't talked about the sacrifices that they're supposed to make yet. He hasn't talked about the ways that they're going to have to relate to him. He, but he's using this idea of restitution and losing something between neighbors to establish the idea that when we come to God, we have jeopardized our relationship with him. And you know what? Payment must be made to restore that relationship. We have jeopardized our relationship, and so there's going to be a whole system of animal blood sacrifices that need to be made to restore that relationship. And the pattern of them restoring relationship with each other would set the stage to reveal the need to them that they need a restored relationship with God. Right, like so, so the damages that we incur from one another, 
in our relationships and the things that we steal or the things that we do or the mistakes that we make, those damages are but a small echo of the damages that we make in our relationship with God through brokenness and sin. And get this, like even their sacrificial system, it was, it was like just enough to make sure God didn't abandon them. Right? It wasn't actually sufficient to, to restore the nearness of relationship that existed at the beginning of creation, for God to like come near and be with all of his people. And so here's what we need to understand. When we come to God, we have injured our relationship with God beyond what we will ever be able to repay. Like no amount of being good or doing right or paying certain things will be able to cover up the damage that we have done in this relationship. And no matter how good we are, we cannot get to God. So then God made restoration. Like God covered the deficit that was between us and him. He covered what we could not cover. He made restoration. He extended shalom by sending his son, Jesus, to die on a cross to pay the debt that we ourselves could not pay. And anyone who turns toward Jesus and entrusts their life to him is invited into right relationship with God. And from there, you know what we do? We become good neighbors who make things right. So when we damage, we seek to pay back because God paid what we ourselves could not pay. Like when we steal, we seek to repay because God paid what we could not pay. When we break, we make it right because God paid even what we could not pay. When we are wronged by someone and they can't do anything to fix the wrong. They can't do anything to make it right. You know what we do? We forgive. Because God paid what we could not pay. Why do we do all of this? Like, why do we uh, be neighbors, become neighbors who would seek to make things right? Because our decisions tell a story. All the decisions that we make in our relationships with our neighbors, they tell a story. A story that we had a wrong, we had no hope of paying back, and Jesus covered even that for us. Okay, so what? So what? The best neighbors live out of shalom with God. And as you interact with your neighbors, as you seek to be a good neighbor, what you need to know is that the best thing for you is going to be to live out of your right relationship with God and let that right relationship with God overflow into seeking to make right relationships with others in this world. So there's a a process to walk through here, a, a few steps. So number one, in living out of our shalom, we need to be secure in Jesus, right? Whatever we may lose through our interactions with our neighbors, whether we're seeking to make something right, whether, uh, whether something is being taken from us, right? Whatever we might lose, we recognize that when we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And it's out of that security that we can go and freely own up to our wrongs, right? So be secure in Jesus. Number two, be thoughtful, Right? 
because Jesus was thoughtful of us. And when you grow weary of being thoughtful and trying to think of the ways that you need to be more considerate towards your neighbor or even maybe take responsibility for your neighbor to a certain degree, right, when you grow weary of that, then let Jesus' thoughtfulness towards you spur you on to being thoughtful towards your neighbors. Number three, you need to fully own your wrongs. So it speaks volumes about what we believe when we are willing to not only admit that we have committed a wrong, but we're willing to make that, to do something to make that wrong right. Like, you know what it takes in the world for, for people who have wronged other people to do something to make that wrong right? Do you know what's required? You go to court, Right? Like, people sue people because they say, you have to make it right. It is a rare thing that people in our society will strive to make their wrongs right. But being a good neighbor is being people who would own, fully own the wrongs that we've committed and do everything that we can to seek to make it right with our neighbor. And then there's going to be a, a place where we can't make up the wrong for other people. And that's, that's a place where we just kind of have to let that go to the Lord, right? But... As, as much as it depends on us, we want to seek to own our wrongs and make them right. And then finally, number four, live to bless. So ultimately, God was seeking to set Israel up, and they were going to be this outpost in a broken world. And in the middle of all these nations, they were going to be looking in on Israel. And they would see in Israel, hopefully, this was what God was setting out to do, that, that neighbors would not just look out for themselves and not just be concerned for their own property and not just be concerned for what's theirs, but that they would actually look out and care for and be considerate towards their neighbors. And the crazy thing is we read the story of Scripture is that Israel ultimately failed to do this. And so God sent Jesus, and Jesus showed us what it really looked like to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then he, he invites us to be those who, who would reflect his story in the ways that we treat our neighbors. So to close, I want, I want to read this passage of Scripture. And I just invite you to uh, receive this, hear what the Lord has to say at the end of Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hear shalom in that? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Stop, because every time we read that, we're like, yeah, we're going to go get them. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna heap those burning coals on their head. You know what burning coals do in Scripture? They purify. They make things right. You know what he's saying? When you go the extra mile for your neighbor who hates you and persecutes you, you tell them a story. You invite them closer to God. You do something that might purify. 
Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we just walk through your law, which at times can feel so dense and so full of information and so far away from us, hard to grasp and understand, may we not get lost in the weeds, but may we see what is at the core of your heart. Lord, may we see that that in your heart is a desire that we would be people who love our neighbors well. Lord, is a desire that, that your people would reflect to the world around us something about this God who reached down, and though we could not make up the debt, the deficit that we had with you, you took on yourself the weight of our sin to make us right with you. You went to the cross in our place for our sakes to make us right with you. Lord, you paid everything that we might have the opportunity to be restored with you. And may that reality drive us to be people who would seek to make restoration in the relationships around us, even with the enemies that, uh, that might hate us or that we might even be inclined to hate. Lord, let it not be said of us that we are those who repay evil for evil that we are those who protect our own, but that we are those who would go above and beyond to be in consideration of our neighbor, to be good neighbors, to love our neighbors well. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just help us to grab onto this idea and drive us to be really great neighbors in the midst of our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our spheres of influence. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.